Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. This time, Brad Snyder talks about his book, Democratic Justice, Felix Frankfurter, The Supreme Court, and the Making of the Liberal Establishment, published by W.W. Norton in August 2022. We recorded our interview on September 15th, 2023 via Zoom. Well, welcome to the podcast. Tell us who Felix Frankfurter is. Sure, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, first of all. Felix Frankfurter was the third Jewish Supreme Court justice um, in the United States. He taught at Harvard Law School for 25 years. And if you you know consider what he accomplished, you figure, well, this guy had to have started out as a member of the elite, but he you know had just an amazing American story arriving in this country at age 11 from Vienna, Austria. He had didn't know a word of English. He'd never heard one spoken. And by age 23, he's you know, on a first name basis with former President Theodore Roosevelt. And, you know, he's first in his class at Harvard Law School. And then he becomes FDR's closest confidant, all the while teaching, you know, at Harvard Law School. And then um, FDR appoints him to the Supreme Court bench in 1939. And, and Frankfurter believed that liberals should believe in judicial restraint, that in a democracy, um, the Supreme Court should defer to the democratic political process. And, and that really, I mean, in some ways, people thought he was going to be a really liberal justice. And at the time, people thought he was a liberal lawyer turned conservative justice. And my book um, really pushes back on that narrative. Well, what does it mean to practice judicial restraint? Yeah, great question. I, what it means to practice judicial restraint is to uphold um, a state or federal law when it's being challenged before the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, for, in particular, Frankfurter thought that Congress's powers under the Constitution were quite broad. When he was in law school, he became attracted to this theory that justices shouldn't overturn a federal law in, unless it's unconstitutional beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So employing that kind of criminal jury kind of standard, whether someone's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt when it comes to the constitutionality of federal laws, because Congress's powers under the Constitution are so broad to pass all sorts of legislation. So he was really reluctant to ever infringe on the powers of Congress. And that's consistent with his time in law school and also consistent with his time as a New Deal advisor for Franklin Roosevelt, where he thought that the Congress had the power to get the country out of the Great Depression. And he was a critic of the court for striking down on many of those pieces of New Deal legislations in 1935 and 1936. And so he was kind of heralded as this liberal answer to a historically conservative Supreme Court. Why is he relevant today? Like, why should we care about him? Well, I think Frankfurter was on the court for 23 years. Frankfurter was totally on board with the Warren court in protecting civil rights. So in some ways, 
he adapted this theory of judicial restraint that he learned in law school and from Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and Louis Brandeis, who both of whom he was friends with. But they didn't weren't really good at protecting civil rights. And Frankfurter was totally on board and, in fact, instrumental um, in the courts um, overturning racially separate but equal schools in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. So he's totally on board with the Warren Court's civil rights project. But what he's not on board with um, is the court overturning precedent when it doesn't have to, um, reaching constitutional issues when it doesn't have to. He is skeptical of judicial power. And I think what he sees the Warren Court doing is aggrandizing the court's power. And Frankfurter thought that was a threat to democracy. For a long time, liberals saw the Supreme Court as their savior, you know, the place where they could vindicate their rights. And um, they considered the Warren Court liberals as their heroes and Frankfurter the villain, right? And, and now things are totally flipped around because I think liberals have realized that the court is what Frankfurter always thought it was, which was kind of a backward-looking, inherently conservative institution, and the power of that court needs to be cabined to allow the democratic political process to work. And yet historians have not been kind to him. Why do you think that is? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, he was could be super pedantic. He was could be difficult among his colleagues. He often rubbed his colleagues the wrong way with his speeches at conference and with his kind of rhetoric, both on the bench and in his judicial opinions. He was a, an extrovert and a gregarious person, super charismatic. I think the justice that I would compare him to um, in this vein is kind of Antonin Scalia. Scalia was a much better writer than Frankfurter was, but he was very extroverted, a big personality, and, and a huge intellect, but he often rubbed his colleagues the wrong way. So I think that's part of Frankfurter's problem. He got on the wrong side of Chief Justice Earl Warren um, and his former student, William Brennan. And I think the people who wrote the histories of the Warren court needed heroes and villains in that narrative. And, and in their narrative, William Brennan, Hugo Black, and Earl Warren are the heroes of the Warren court, and, and that makes puts Frankfurter in the villain category. This is a cradle-to-grave biography, minus an in-depth accounting of his early years in Austria. What was the most interesting time for you in your research during Frankfurter's life? I tried really hard to figure out what happened to Felix from year one to 11 in Austria. Um, in fact, I think I did cover Austria as well as I could under my circumstances. Um, and I had a couple of kind of circumstances that people at BIO um, would sympathize with. Um, let me tell you the reason why um, I think the Austria years are so important. Frankfurter's religion, he gave up going to synagogue at age 15. He walked out of Yom Kippur services and never went back because as a non-believer, he thought he would be a hypocrite if he continued to go to synagogue, Frankfurter's religion was really Americanism. And, it, and Frankfurter started his own sort of, not biography, but oral history with the story of his teacher at PS21, a Miss Hogan, who threatened Frankfurter's fellow classmates with corporal punishment. Frankfurter lived in a German-speaking neighborhood in lower Manhattan. Um, all of his classmates knew German, but she said, if you speak to Felix, 
having just arrived off the boat from Austria, you know, in German, um, you will suffer physical consequences. And he credited Miss Hogan and PS21 um, with Americanizing him and teaching him how to be an American, how to speak English. And by the end of his elementary school graduation, he gave a speech at the, you know, as well, it's like salutatorian of his elementary school graduation. So that's his religion. He thinks that his life began when he was 11 um, at Ellis Island, stepping off that um, ship, you know, where he was in steerage with his family. But the Austria backstory is fascinating, right? His father failing to make a living in Austria. He was sort of a black sheep of the of this prominent family. And so he came to America a few years before Frankfurter arrived and, and saw all the possibilities there. And his economic fortunes really didn't change in America as fathers. You know, that failure moving the family to Hungary to pest um, in, in what's now Hungary. Um, that was something that I don't think a lot of biographers really touched on. And then living apart from his father and living with his uncle, who was a prominent academic at the University of Vienna and, and his uncle's influence on him, showing him um, what a rich life, the life of an academic could be. I think he was Felix's first role model. And so I really wanted to tell the story of his uncle, his uncle Solomon, and that story, of course, comes back later on in my biography, because when the Nazis raid Austria during the Anschluss, his uncle, being a prominent Jewish academic involved in public life, um, is sent to prison and, and is in Nazi prison in, at 82 years old. And Felix uses his contacts in the State Department to get his uncle out of that Nazi prison. His uncle lived under house arrest for the remainder of his life in Austria. His library was expropriated by the Nazis and given to the Austrians. But be that as it may, I mean, this story of Felix and his uncle and these parallel lives, I thought the Austria piece was so important. And then I was stymied by two things. The first thing, I never got my feet on the ground in Vienna. Um, I had the money to go to Vienna, um, but the pandemic hit. And that prevented me right at the end of my book, the last thing I wanted to do after I exhausted all of my archival possibilities from overseas. I even had a German-speaking law student, a native German, who was helping me translate German documents and correspond in German with archivists. But I was really stymied by the archivist um, at the Jewish Museum in Vienna. She refused to allow me to use the um, archives at all. She um, said I needed permission from Frankfurter's heirs to use the Jewish Museum um, in Austria. Frankfurter was childless. He has no heirs, which I tried to explain. Felix's grandfather and great-grandfather were both active in the Vienna Jewish, Viennese Jewish community, and I wanted to find out more about them. And I, I was completely stymied, and I had um, even Austrian academics trying to intercede on my behalf. Um, so I worked really hard. I also tried to figure out whether Felix ever attended one of these schools. I I'm forget the names on the tip of my tongue, and I'm forgetting it's kind of this academic middle school that Austria is famous for. And the records for those schools are, are there's some of the schools have records, some of them don't. I just relied on the good faith of archivists and my German speaking student to try to look to find records of whether Felix attended one of those schools. I don't think he did. I don't know for sure. 
Um, but it was a little bit of a black box for me. In my acknowledgments, I urge future historians to go to Austria and to go to Vienna and to try to, you know, augment the story that I told about Felix in, in Austria, because I think there's still more to be found because the Austrians, like the Germans, um, are pretty good record keepers. So um, I, I hope I provided a roadmap um, for a future historian. I found it interesting that when RBG came up for a clerkship in his office, he turned her down. What's up with that? Yeah, it's crazy, right? I, I kind of couldn't believe it either. It's one of the biggest blunders of his of his judicial career. I just imagine what his legacy would have looked like if he had hired um, both William T. Coleman, who was Gerald Ford's Secretary of Transportation, the the second black cabinet member was was the first black Supreme Court clerk with Frankfurter. He was obviously not concerned um, with social norms like, you know, the color line. Why wouldn't he hire RBG when she was presented to him by a member of the Harvard Law Faculty who was in charge of choosing his law clerks? You know, it, it's a complicated answer. Let me Let me try to back up a little bit and give people some context. Harvard Law School did not admit women during his time there. For the 25 years from 1914 to 1939 that Frankfurter taught at Harvard, he didn't teach a single woman there. And in fact, he visited at Cornell Law School and he even remarked how odd it was to teach women law students. So I think if he had he taught women law students, this would have been a non-issue. The second like kind of puzzling thing was he had a really egalitarian view of women. Um, in the workplace. He was really good friends with Eleanor Roosevelt. He was really good friends with Francis Perkins, who was the Secretary of Labor in Roosevelt's cabinet. He worked professionally with Florence Kelly, who was the head of the National Consumers League, when they were fighting for the constitutionality of minimum wage laws and maximum hour laws for workers. So like he had worked with a lot of really strong, powerful women. And so like the puzzle for me as a biographer was like, what the hell, man? Like this is RBG, right? And, and Al Sachs, who's like this prominent professor at Harvard in those days, um, there weren't interviews with justices. So RBG never interviewed with Frankfurter. Frankfurter delegated the responsibility of choosing the law clerk sight unseen to a single professor. And, and this is what the same job Frankfurter had done for Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and, and Louis Brandeis. He picked their law clerks in precisely this way. And usually the professor just submits the name and that's it. And Frankfurter said, I don't know if I believe him, but Frankfurter said, had Al Sachs just come to him and said, Ruth Ginsburg is your law clerk next year, Frankfurter would have said, okay. But Sachs came to him and said, hey, I wanted to run this by you before I select Ruth Ginsburg. And Frankfurter said, you know, I've just had a heart attack and the doctors told me to simplify my life. And, you know, Al Sachs had informed him that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, Marty, who was a member of the Georgetown Law Faculty for years and years where I teach, that Marty Ginsburg had testicular cancer, that testicular cancer was in remission and also had a young child at home. And, and Frankfurter said, you know, I just had a heart attack. The doctor told me to slow down and simplify my life. And I just can't think about a woman with a husband who has a young child and a husband sick with cancer um, in my chambers and, and the stress that that might put on me. 
I had the great opportunity to show this letter to RBG herself. So um, I was speaking at the Supreme Court Historical Society, and Justice Ginsburg introduced me. I was speaking on the Sacco and Vanzetti case, which I went into some depth, and I had the incredible honor to bring my mom um, into Ruth Ginsburg's chambers. My mom was so excited to meet Justice Ginsburg that she was silent, right? She didn't say a word the whole time, but I came with documents, so I came with Al Sachs's letter, which she had never seen. And I also came with Frankfurter's response, which was a letter. And I showed it to the justice. And I she read it while I was standing there. And I, I just, I wanted her reaction for the book. And I included her reaction for the book. And I think she said something like, I, I'm paraphrasing, but like typical white male chauvinism was her reaction it was great you know justice ginsburg is a was a woman of few words she wasn't an extrovert she was an introvert she talked in kind of slowly and kind of haltingly she thought very carefully at about every single word she spoke she thought very carefully about what she was going to say about those letters but she did not hold back she thought that both al Sachs and Felix Frankfurter were relying on stereotypes about women. And, and she was totally right. And I corroborated that with one of Frankfurter's law clerks knew um, Ruth Ginsburg from Harvard Law School. And Frankfurter said, well, I've been told I should hire Ruth Ginsburg, but I'm not going to do it. And they're like, well, why not, Justice? She's great. And, they, and he said, well, I curse too much in chambers. And then um, and the law clerk says, you don't curse in chambers. And he said, well, I work you guys too hard. They said, no, you don't. And he was like making all these excuses, but they knew it was a done deal that no matter what they told him that he wasn't going to hire her. Ginsburg was like the Thurgood Marshall of her generation um, when it came to women's rights. And for her to be able to clerk for Frankfurter and Frankfurter to be able to learn from her um, would have been an amazing experience um, because he certainly had some learning to do um, when it came to protecting women's rights um, under the Equal Protection Clause. And she could have taught him and she could have opened his eyes just as William T. Coleman, the first black um, Supreme Court clerk whom he hired, really opened Frankfurter's eyes about segregated graduate and professional schools and really helped Frankfurter in 1948 prepare for the graduate school segregation cases that culminated with a case about University of Texas Law School called Sweat versus Painter. It was Coleman's memo at the end of his clerkship that Frankfurter passed on to future clerks that I think really helped him make Brown versus Board of Education for him an easy case. And it was the discrimination Coleman experienced while a law clerk at the Supreme Court, right, not being able to eat with the other clerks at the Mayflower Hotel because Washington, D.C. was thoroughly segregated. And Coleman's co-clerk says, hey, Bill, let's go eat at Union Station instead. That was the only place in D segregated D.C. where a black person and a white person could have a meal. And after they came back, Frankfurter had tears in his eyes, Bill Coleman recounted. So like Frankfurter learned so much from having Bill Coleman in his chambers. I just can't imagine what he would have learned from Ruth Ginsburg. I know that's a long answer, but that's one of those what ifs that, that I wish he had made the right choice. Well, I'm glad I asked the question because it shows what a great storyteller you are. You do such a great job of 
flowing this narrative from one paragraph to the next. And I wonder how you were able to turn this massive archival project into such an artful story. Well, I really appreciate that. First of all, I had some really good editors. Um, I had good editors at Norton. I had a good editor at Georgetown Law School. I had some good outside readers as well. But I, I think um, we really wanted to write this book for a lay audience. So I, I really wanted the story to resonate with the average person. And so I did not want to write an academic judicial biography, which I find, even as a law professor, to be boring, right? It's like, this case said this, and then this case said this. I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to get into the weeds of cases um, that don't resonate with people. So I really wanted to tell stories and contextualize kind of the greatest hits if you will, of those Supreme Court cases that Frankfurter dealt with and put those within the milieu that Frankfurter was operating, right? Like I tried to pair the case about suspected communists, Dennis versus the United States, in which I think Frankfurter got wrong, but with the Alger Hiss case, Alger Hiss was a former student and protege of Felix Frankfurter's. And so Frankfurter testified at a as a character witness at Alger Hiss's first trial. And I sort of wanted to show the reader that Frankfurter was thinking about Alger Hiss and dealing with the fallout from Alger Hiss's trial for perjury at the same time. And a, and a lot of suspected communist cases during that kind of McCarthy era of the early 1950s and late 1940s. So I wanted to tell that larger story and how it affected him. And of course, Frankfurter was labeled a communist from the beginning, right? Just because he was Jewish. The allegations against him at his confirmation hearing was that he was a communist. Well, Frankfurter wasn't a communist, uh, but he was Jewish and he had advocated for left-wing causes. So therefore, all these people testified against him at his confirmation hearings that he was a communist. So there's that backdrop too. Uh, you know, my audience was like my mom, right? My mom's not a lawyer, right? So I wanted my mom to find the book interesting. And, you know, she always tells me she's a former journalist. And uh, she said, make sure you include, make it about people, right? And make it about people's stories. And that's really what I tried to do in the book. Uh, and, and just not bore people, right? Even though the book's incredibly long, right? I'm like, is this boring? If it's boring, it goes, right? Like, in, and, and so... You know, I just tried to never bore the reader. Well, that's just it. At 700 some pages, this book really flows. And I want to know about your writing process. What were some of the tools that you used to keep yourself in the chair day after day? It's kind of like working out, right, Jenny? Like, it's kind of like, you know, you have to do it every day, right? Even if you're not making progress and, you know, sometimes you plateau and then you have a breakthrough a couple of days later. For me, first of all, it's having a good outline. I had a good chapter by chapter outline of what I wanted to say. And then I started this book in kind of a weird way. There have been a lot of prior Frankfurter biographers that haven't been able to finish because he wrote so many letters, because there's so much archival material, it becomes overwhelming. And so what I decided to do was start writing um, in 1939 when he joins the court and so I wrote the book from 1939 to 1962, the court years. I knew if I could finish all the court years, then I would wrap it around and start the beginning of the book. And so, and I'd already written about that early period of Frankfurter's life in another book 
in a prior book about a political salon called the House of Truth. And so I knew if I got to the end of his life that I could start back at the beginning and then write from the beginning. And so that enabled me to finish. The other thing that I've kind of learned over the years is to take a kind of chapter by chapter approach. You know, I had a basis of primary source research. I've been researching Frankfurter's life for years and years. You know, then I just would take a chapter by chapter and then I would just say, all right, I'm going to research everything I have to research in this chapter, everything I need over the next two weeks, and then I'm going to write it all up. And I'm not going to stop until I finish the chapter. And then I do the next one. And then I do the next one. You know, writers are very like kind of OCD and that, and that enables you to like tap into that OCD gene, right? Like I'm going to learn everything I have to learn about Alger Hiss when I'm involved in this Alger Hiss chapter. Frankfurter was really in, involved. He was a good friend of Robert Oppenheimer and he was in, and he knew about the atomic bomb before Harry Truman. And I learned everything there was to learn about the history of atomic energy, the Manhattan Project. I had corresponded with both Kai Bird and his late colleague, Martin Sherwin. Martin Sherwin was amazing. And, and, you know, I was at the National Archives going through all these Atomic Energy Commission documents, and I was asking Martin Sherwin for help. And, you know, he was incredibly helpful. And I'm so grateful to him and just for that opportunity to have that back and forth with him, even though he's no longer with us. But I just like got really OCD about you know, the Manhattan Project and about, you know, what he knew, what Stimson knew, how does Frankfurter know what he knew, you know, what happened when he told FDR that he knew about the atomic bomb. Those kind of things were super fun with me. Same thing with Zionism and, this, you know, the recognition of the state of Israel. You know, when I got to that point, I didn't know, even though I'm Jewish, a lot about how the United States came around to being the first country to recognize the state of Israel until I found out it was really Felix Frankfurter working through two of his protégés in the Truman administration, David Niles and Max Lowenthal, you know, until I kind of dove into that and his, and Frankfurter's like Weitzman's, Chaim Weitzman's go-between with the Truman administration. You know, I'm an archive rat, so I love the archives. To go in there and just to touch these documents about figure out how this all happened um, was just, it's just fun. Fascinating. Yeah. Thank you so much, Brad Snyder. Thank you, Jenny. I really I had a great time doing this. That was my conversation with Brad Snyder about his book, Democratic Justice, Felix Frankfurter, the Supreme Court, and the Making of the Liberal Establishment. It was published by W.W. Norton in August 2022. This interview was recorded via Zoom on September 15th, 2023. To learn more about Bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.